everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for pressing that play button. I really do appreciate it. Zane Asher is a CNN anchor. She's a mother of two and author of Where the Children Take Us, which is her incredible new book, which tells the story of her mother's harrowing fight to raise four children as a widowed immigrant in South London. Zane tells us in this episode how her mother teaches her children to overcome the daily pressures of poverty, crime and prejudice and how with her relentless support the children exceed all expectations. Listen to this. One becomes a CNN anchor, which is Zane. One becomes an Oscar nominated actor, a doctor and a thriving entrepreneur. So it is an incredible story. It's also a conversation about values and culture. And speaking to Zane made me reflect really deeply on my own parenting. And it made me ask myself this question. What are the most important values in our family? And how do we live those? I really hope this episode moves and inspires you. Here it is. Before we get on to this week's episode, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week, Portable breast pumps are just brilliant, aren't they? They're convenient, fuss-free, and allow us to get on with whatever we need to do hands-free. And the Frau Pal pump is just brilliant. The pump tucks into your bra so you can pump and go with no wires. It has 12 comfort levels. How good is that? It has capacity for 180 ml milk. And I think this bit is really important. The Frau Pau pump is really competitive and an accessible price point. It's actually over £150 cheaper than many of the other hand-free pumps out there. Frau Pau also offer a totally free midwife live chat every Friday on their website. So anyone can head there if you need some advice from a professional midwife, whether you're pregnant, you have a newborn or you just need some help with your baby. Listeners of the podcast can get 10% off the Frau Pau breast pump at www.fraupau, that's F-R-A-U-P-O-W dot com with the code motherkind10 that's fraupau.com motherkind10 for 10% off your portable breast pump and see the website motherkind.co for t's and c's here is this week's episode I'm saying, well, welcome to the podcast. I was just sharing before we started recording. I finished your incredible new book last night and it is unbelievable story of hope and resilience and love. And I cannot wait for this conversation. I'm so excited to get to know you better and to dig into this story better. So welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to read it. You know, it means so much to me that people are actually responding to it in this way. It means a lot. Of course. I know lots of podcast guests don't actually read the books, but I'm not one of them. (laughs) 
I have noticed that. I have noticed that. It's very common where they clearly have not read the book. I have, and I adored it. So I'm just so excited to get into this story of your family and your mother and your siblings. And I wanted to start, I guess, where the book starts, which is about that horrific day, September the 3rd, 1988. Tell us about that day. I mean, that day is a really difficult day to talk about even now. You know, my mother received a phone call on that day that changed our lives forever. It came early evening-ish in September 1988. And the voice on the other end of the line when my mother answered the phone basically said, your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead and we don't know which one. And there's no way to describe that moment other than an emotional earthquake for my family. It turned out to be my father who had passed away in that tragic accident. But my mother didn't know who in her family had died at the time. And so she left for Nigeria basically that night. My father and my brother were on a father-son road trip in Nigeria. My mother really didn't really want them to go on it. You know, they had debates about whether or not it was necessary. My father wanted my brother to sort of know a bit more about his culture and his background and where he was from. And he lost his life on that trip. And so my mother went back to Nigeria. And in that moment, from leaving London, going back to Nigeria, she had no idea who she was going to be burying in her family, whether it was going to be her husband or her son. And so you can imagine just the overwhelming fear. And actually, it was fear, but there was some hope there because my mother thought that, well, maybe there was a mix-up. Maybe there was some kind of mistake and maybe both of them are fine or maybe it was just an accident and nobody had lost their life. There was so much fear mixed with hope, so many different swirling emotions. And essentially what happened was there was a car crash on the road to Lagos between where we're from, Enugu, and Lagos, which is one of the biggest cities or the biggest city in Nigeria. And everyone in the car died instantly apart from one person in the back seat where my father and my brother were sitting. And initially, authorities thought that everybody in the car had died. That's what it looked like on the scene. And so my family members in the village in Nigeria, where we're originally from, were told that everyone had lost their life. And then they eventually heard. I mean, you've got to remember, this is 1980s Nigeria. Obviously, there's no cell phones. One person hears one thing from this person, who hears another thing from that person. And then some people were hearing that one person had survived, but the little boy had survived. Other people had heard from the authorities initially that everybody had passed away. And so there was so much confusion. And people were sort of still in the middle of arguing, trying to work out the facts when someone made that dreaded call to my mother. And in fact, my brother, who was in that car as well, because everyone was assumed dead, he was actually taken to the morgue as well, along with my dad. And it was only when they arrived at the morgue that they realized my brother was still breathing. And so even now, it's very, very difficult to talk about that time in my life. I was only five years old. My mother had three kids and was pregnant at the time. And so, you know, the book is really a celebration of my mother because somehow, despite going through 
that great tragedy, she fought with every fiber of her being for us and carried us on her back for years to give us a better life. And thanks to her tough love, thanks to her fighting spirit that she has, her tenacity, my siblings and I have surpassed every expectation for a family in our circumstance. I obviously am an anchor at CNN. My brother, who was taken to the morgue that day, left for dead essentially, is uh, now an Oscar-nominated actor. He was nominated for his uh, starring role in 12 Years a Slave. My sister is a doctor and my other brother is a very successful entrepreneur. So the book, although it begins with tragedy, it really is a celebration of who my mother is. And I am so, so proud of her. You say this line in the book, but despite her grief, she made an unwavering commitment to raise her children to become ambitious, talented, disciplined. And it makes me emotional. You can hear the wobble in my voice because I just cannot imagine the strength that she must have had to have accessed in order to do that through, you know, you describe your father as the love of her life. How do you think she accessed that strength? It's something that I've thought about a lot because when I started writing the book, I was 36 years old. That was when I submitted the proposal. And I was the same age that my mother was when this happened to her. And I honestly cannot imagine going through something like that. It really haunted me, the fact that I was the same age as her when tragedy struck in that way. When you're young, I mean, I was five years old when my father passed away. When you're young, you see 36 is really old. Until you become 36 yourself, you realize just how young it is. And to have three kids and to be pregnant and to get that kind of news. I would say that her strength came from the sort of childhood she had. My mother lived through the Biafra war in Nigeria. That's a civil war that lasted for about two and a half, almost three years. That war was the stuff of nightmares. I mean, we're talking about people eating snakes to survive. We're talking about starvation being used as a weapon of war. And my mother, who was barely a teenager at that time, her job was to take care of her siblings. My grandmother had seven children at that time, by that time. And my mother being the oldest, she was in charge of making sure that the family did not basically suffer from starvation like so many people did. So she would go to the markets and sell Gary, sell cassava, sell whatever sort of grain or crop she could in order to raise whatever funds she could for the family. And there were times, I mean, I detail this in the book, that she risked her life, almost died doing that because the bombings were relentless. And so I think that going through that in your most delicate, most formative years as a human being, your teenage years, really strengthens you. But I will say that my mother when she was married to my dad, was somebody who was quite shy, didn't really speak much. And anybody who knew her would have thought that she would never be able to withstand this kind of tragedy. And at the beginning, they were right. I mean, I, I talk about in the book the fact that in those initial weeks and months after my father passed away, my mother would lock herself in her bedroom, would not see her for hours. Sometimes we'd see her once a day. Then she would lock herself in her room until the next day. And so it was dark times because we were essentially left to raise ourselves. 
So somehow through that difficulty, she tapped into this inner strength that must have been with her through wartime, that must have been developed and nurtured within her during her fight during the Biafra War. And I think that rose to the fore. It's really hard to distill where that kind of strength comes from because it is so rare. And the book is really an exploration for me of what makes my mother special and how she did it. And so I think it's a combination of factors. Because a lot of people coming out of those circumstances, as you described, would have been overcome with trauma. They would have been unable to continue, you know, given that the tragedy of living through war and then the tragedy again of what happened to her husband and the father of her four children. It's such a poignant and powerful question, isn't it, to reflect on where does these characteristics come from? Yeah, and I mean, because of her willingness to fight for us, our lives ended up very, very differently than they would have. And so, you know, I I talk about in the book this idea that she would find newspaper clippings of Black success stories, cut them out and plaster them to our walls to give us something to aspire to. Yeah, I love that. She wanted us to focus on anything besides our loss and the empty chair at the dinner table. I think it also helped her as well, giving her something to focus on, to concentrate her efforts on, besides sort of thinking about her loss and my father. So these were some of the things that she did growing up. When my brother wanted to act, initially her reaction was, you know, I'd much prefer my children, just like most sort of Nigerian immigrants, I'd much prefer my children to be doctors and lawyers because it's, of course, much easier to explain to your friends. But when my brother wanted to become an actor, his teachers sat her down and said, listen, it would not be a wise decision for you not to let this boy act. He is that talented. She had very little education herself. Her high school years were interrupted by the Biafra War. She wasn't in school for two and a half, nearly three years. Despite that, she sat and she taught herself Shakespeare. She ran a pharmacy in Brixton and she would bring Measure for Measure with her. She would bring Hamlet with her to read. She would bring Othello with her. And even though the text and the prose and the dialogue was hard for her to understand. She would underline the words. She would sort of look them up. She would read through it very, very slowly to push my brother to be better. And it meant that they would rehearse together. So if my brother had a play coming up, she would read one part and he would read the other. So I think that it was for us as much as it was for her, because when you're trapped in grief in that way. And of course, you know, the initial sort of first year after my father passed away, it was very, very difficult for my mother emotionally, especially because she was pregnant and having to sort of give birth to my sister without my father by her side was so, so difficult emotionally. But once she began to emerge and once she began to focus on where she could channel her strength, her preoccupation became our well-being and our future. And so she really dug her teeth into that. The more I think about it, the more remarkable, you know, I think it is, because I don't necessarily know if I was in the same circumstances she was, if I would have that level of strength. I don't know either for me. Tell me about some of the other ways that she raised you. I loved reading about 
those images that she put over the wall and her learning Shakespeare. And there are many, many other things she did. Tell us about some of those things. Yeah, so when I was about seven years old, she went to my teachers and got my school syllabus for the year. And she would figure out what I would be learning in, say, a month or two from now. And she would teach it to me beforehand at home so that by the time I learned it in school, I already knew it. And that had a real meaningful impact on me because it meant that, first and foremost, my teachers thought that I was much, much smarter than I actually was. But also on top of that, the accolades and the sort of praise that I got at school reinforced my desire to do better. So the more I worked with my mother at home, the more my teachers sort of showered me with praise and really encouraged me and used me as kind of a role model for other students. And that fueled my desire to go home and want to study more with my mother. And I think that at that age, seven, eight years old, you know, she's sort of laying the foundation for my future. You know, she was really writing my future because studying at that point began to be something that I enjoyed and I could see the direct result in terms of a reward in school. And so that really helped me as well. Another thing she would do is as we got older, she would make us divide our days into three equal parts, obviously 24 hours in a day, three parts of eight hours each. And so she would say eight hours for sleeping, eight hours for, you know, your time in school. And the last eight hours of the day, she would encourage us to use it to work towards our dreams. And if you think about how we all spend our time, most people spend roughly seven, eight hours a day sleeping. Most people also spend roughly, you know, eight hours or so in the office. And so her point was that if you're going to distinguish yourself in anything that you want to do in life, the only sort of real advantage you have is how you spend the last eight hours of your day, because the other 16 hours are already more or less accounted for. The only thing that separates one person from the next is how they spend the last eight hours. And in my life now, and I think most people, if I ask you, Zoe, how long did you spend sleeping today? You'd easily be able to tell me. If I say, how long did you spend in the office today working? You'd easily be able to tell me. But if I ask, I think most people, how did you spend the last eight hours of your day between sort of, you know, getting the kids ready for bed, bedtime story, commuting home from work, cooking dinner, you know, watching TV, the last eight hours kind of disappears. I found it much easier before I had kids to account for the last eight hours of my day. And I was very strict about that. But now that I have kids, as you know, being a mother, your time really isn't your own, you know? So the last eight hours of my day is really now, now that I'm a mom of two, it's really probably about the last two hours of my day. But the little time that I do have now, I still try to account for it. So her sort of instruction during our childhood has still played a fundamental role in my life, even today, 30 years later. Did any of you rebel against these ideas? Because I know many people listening will relate to these sort of parental values of parents telling us what's important. And yet so many rebel, don't they? And go, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do it my way. Were you in a way allowed to rebel? I know you've described her as strict. And I know at one point you went back to Nigeria, didn't you? Was there any sense of wanting to break out of some of those values and the things you're being told? Or could you see, as you've described, the benefit of living this way? I personally 
didn't rebel. My oldest brother did right after my dad died, as I talk about in the book. But I personally didn't. And the real sort of only reason for that is because when I turned about nine, 10 years old, my mother sent me back to live in Nigeria for a couple of years. This is a very, very common practice among Nigerian parents, whereby if you are Nigerian and you raise your children in the UK or the United States, there is a tendency to want to send them back to live in Nigeria for a couple of years, usually before the end of high school, during their formative years, during the years where they're most malleable. And the idea behind it is that you by doing that, are going to instill in them the values that Nigerian families hold dear. For example, you know, hard work, discipline, resilience, you know, the importance of taking care of, of family members, the importance of obeying your elders. I mean, it's a really sort of tough love, strict environment. And when you live in that kind of environment for two years, you become a different person. And that's the plan. That's why a lot of Nigerian parents do that. We refer to it jokingly as shipping back. And I talk about this in the book. And so after living with my grandparents for two years, which involved, you know, fetching water from the local stream, it involved occasionally having to catch food that we ate. It involved sanitation days. It was once a month in Nigeria back then was the sort of Saturday sanitation day, which meant that everybody was not allowed to leave the house. This was a government rule. You had to spend first sort of five, six hours of a, a, one Saturday a month cleaning your house. And you weren't really allowed to be caught on the street. You had to sort of be seen cleaning your house. And so when you're in that kind of an environment, the idea of rebelling against your parents, it just doesn't exist. Just doesn't exist. I talk about the fact that in the book, Nigerian children tend to refer to their fathers or their grandparents as sir and their mothers as ma'am or grandparents as ma'am. And the idea behind that is even language is designed to maintain this kind of hierarchy within the family. So if you are respectful in how you talk to your parents, the idea of them telling you something and you deciding not to do it, I mean, you have to refer to your father in Nigeria or your grandfather as sir. I mean, that kind of use of language is really deliberate, I think. And so there's no real room for you to rebel. It just doesn't exist in Nigeria the way it would, say, in, in Western societies. And so because of that, my tendency to rebel was diminished. I mean, I had a few, you know, there was obviously times in high school where I stayed out late and went to parties. But by and large, I really did listen to my mother. You know, I have two girls. I think about this so much, getting that balance between parental pressure and expectations versus the space for someone to figure out who they are in the world. How did you do that? What did that look like for you? Well, luckily for me, my mum was really good at not pressuring us to pursue careers that were not for us or that we didn't want to do. So yes, there was an initial moment whereby you know, she wanted us to become doctors and lawyers, you know, and when my brother wanted to pursue acting, it was kind of like, huh, acting? You know, what are you talking about kind of thing? And then she quickly changed her tune when the teachers at my brother's school sat her down and said, this boy is extremely talented. You'd be nuts not to let him act. For me, especially after Chuatel wanting to act, when it came my turn to want to pursue journalism, I mean, you know, it was, <laughs> it 
she had seen now that by letting my brother pursue his dreams and seeing how that was bearing fruit, then she decided that that would be the case for the rest of us. So there was no real pressure on us to, you know, you have to do this job because that's going to make me look good and I'm not going to have you do something that there wasn't that, by the t- especially by the time I was growing up. So she was really good at that. And I think that one thing that I loved that my mother did is once we decided that we were going to pursue something, she supported us 100%. 100% had our backs. We had conversations about me potentially going to Oxford. At the time, my grades were good, but I wouldn't say they were Oxford material at all. And so my mother, I remember, paced her room one night and thought to herself, gosh, what can I do to guarantee that my child is going to go to Oxford? You know, there is this sense among immigrant families, especially Nigerian families, that, you know, the idea of Oxford and Cambridge, you know, is really the ticket to a better life. And she absolutely believed that, especially coming from a country whereby her education was interrupted. She really, really valued the education and the possibilities that living in Britain gave her children. And in her mind, she wasn't going to waste it. And so she paced her bedroom and thought to herself, what can I do to guarantee that my child is going to go to Oxford? And so she came into my bedroom and said, I've got it. I know exactly what to do to guarantee that you're going to go to Oxford University. And I said, what, mum? And she said that she was going to basically ban me from watching television until I had an actual Oxford acceptance letter in hand. And that sounds really extreme, but It worked for me because by eliminating distractions in our household, it meant that I had nothing to do but study. You know, she also had a residential payphone put in the house, those tiny sort of phones that just have a slot on the side for coins. So that meant that if I wanted to talk to my friends, I would have to literally pay 20p a minute. But by eliminating all distractions, it meant that I had nothing else to do but study. And very, very soon, my grades began to get better and better. And not only was I becoming a straight A student, but soon enough, in a lot of my tests, I was getting every answer correct. And I would jokingly say to her, you know, mom, there are lots of kids who, you know, watch TV and play video games all day long and still go to Oxford and still get, you know, straight A's for A level. And she would say to me, yes, there are, but you're not one of those kids. You actually have to work. She was very brutally honest like that. And she was right. You know, I did have to work. And I know that that isn't necessarily for everyone. I don't even know if my kids are very young. I don't necessarily know if I for sure am going to pursue that route with them. Because it's a very different time that we live in. I mean, now it's not just television. It's it's also phones and it's also lots of other different devices. But for me, growing up with my mother eliminating distractions, that completely changed my life. And when I finally got that Oxford acceptance letter in the mail, I knew that, yes, it was, of course, my own hard work, but I really had her to thank because by creating an environment for two years where I had nothing else to do but study, that completely changed my life. And of course, when you are a black girl growing up in South London without much money, going to Oxford does change your life. I mean, it literally did change mine and the opportunities that came my way as a result. So... I'm grateful for the tough love environment that I grew up in. You mentioned there about your own voice. And I'm wondering, what are some of the most powerful lessons from your own childhood and from watching 
yourself and your siblings that you want to pass on to them? That's the first part of the question. And the second part is, is there anything that you don't want to pass on? Is there anything that you want to do differently or anything that you've learned through your adult life that you're going to do differently with your own children? I'll answer the second part first. I think that my children are raised under very, very different circumstances than I was raised. You know, my childhood was really all about survival. And my mother suffered this great, great tragedy in her life. You know, she didn't want it to define us. My children, I have a husband, I'm happily married. My children are somewhat privileged. So I think that the one thing that I probably am unlikely to do is the shipping back. A lot of Nigerian parents, as I mentioned, do sort of consider sending their children back to Nigeria to live for a couple of years with extended relatives. When I was growing up, I had my grandparents that I lived with. My children wouldn't have that because my grandparents on both sides have passed away. And also my mother, by and large, lives in London. So they wouldn't have the sort of same community setup that I had if I was going to, you know, make them live in, in Africa for a while. And also they've just had different life experiences. I think that when it comes to television and that sort of thing, I am trying to figure out what the right balance is. Yes, the no television thing certainly helped me. I would say that my mother gave me a gift and she assured me when she stopped me from watching television that it was going to pay off. With my own children, I think that I probably will would limit how much they watch TV. I, again, my children are very young. My son is three and my youngest son is only eight months. But I don't necessarily know if in today's world an outright ban would make sense because there are so many different avenues for them to watch television or there's social media, there is whatever they can watch on their phone, on YouTube. It's just a very different landscape. And so those are the things that I have to consider. I think that what I do love about my childhood, most of all, which combines all the different things that my mother did for me, is that my childhood was all about tough love. It was all about discipline. And even though it wasn't an easy childhood, it absolutely prepared me for real life. And that means that when I go through things now as an adult, I think that I'm much better prepared to tackle them emotionally because of the sort of childhood that I had growing up. I did not have a Disney sort of perfect childhood at all. I love that, you know, and that is something that I cherish. I cherish that my childhood was not an easy one. But again, in terms of my own children, it's just they're just born into very, very different circumstances. And so for me, a lot of people ask me when they read the book, they talk about how moved they are and they want advice about how to apply some of the lessons with their own children. And I always have to say to them that I really do not want this book to be prescriptive in any way. It is not my job to sort of give people a framework in terms of how to raise their own children. This is just me sharing my family's story and what worked for us in those circumstances. If you are born into much different circumstances, I don't necessarily know if you need to go to the sorts of extremes that my mother went to. So yeah, I think that my only hope is that when people read the book, they can look at what they find inspiring and take from it what they will. You know, that I think is the goal as opposed to it being prescriptive in any way. 
When I read it, what inspired me most, I think, you know, clearly the story. But underneath the story, I think, is a mother and a family who really understood what your values were and made some really big decisions, like some of the ones that you were just sharing in line with those values. And clearly, every single individual and every single family has different values. It sounds like, you know, education, knowledge, self-mastery, discipline were all super important values in your home growing up. And as you say, I think that's the inspiring thing, is figuring out what are the really important things for me as a mother, for us as a family, and how do we begin to live by those? So I'm wondering what your values are within your family today. Are they the same values as you had growing up, or have you changed and moulded and reflected those based on, as you said, the sort of different circumstances that you find yourself in? I think that one of the most important values that I would like to pass on to my children that was a theme throughout my entire childhood growing up was this community spirit that is very present in Nigerian society that I really, really cherish. You know, I talk about in the book that when I got accepted into Oxford, my mother told me that people in our village had thrown a party on my behalf. There were literally people who were dancing in the streets celebrating that I had been accepted into Oxford. And this idea really struck me because thought that people who I had never met, people I had never even spent time with, I'd never even shaken their hand, could be so happy to see me do well was remarkable to me. It made me really pause and think. But that is a spirit, that sort of communion, that togetherness is very present in Nigerian society. Nigeria, don't get me wrong, has a lot of problems. You know, we could, <laughs> we could easily list the litany of problems that the country has. But one thing that you can't take away from it is that idea that we are all in it together, that when you do well, I do well. I talk about this idea of sort of not believing in competition that was a big part of how I grew up and being genuinely happy for other people, to see other people do well. That's something that I'm keen for my children to learn. You know, in Nigeria, for example, anyone can come to your wedding. A wedding is not like an exclusive event in Nigeria. When I got married, I had to remind myself that, oh, I, I live in America now, it's very different. But in Nigeria, if you happen to be walking past a wedding, you are more than happy to go in and join in on the fun. If you live in a village, what we tend to do is we put posters up around the village that, you know, two people are getting married. Anyone who sees that poster, anyone who's ever met the couple can show up to the wedding because a celebration for one is a celebration for all. I mean, that's a theme throughout the book of being genuinely happy for other people and sort of feeling that you belong to a wider body that has your back no matter what. So that's one of the things that made my childhood a lot easier than it otherwise would have been. Obviously a single mother, not much money, raising four kids. She has three and is pregnant with one when her husband dies in a car accident. The fact that we had an entire community of people behind us in Nigeria helping us was just remarkable. You know, that really gave us hope. And so that is the one thing. I mean, obviously the success part of it is important to me as well and, and working hard and being disciplined, but the community is something that I hope that they adopt as well. Yeah, and I was so touched when you shared the story about how you went for your interview at CNN, which was your dream job you shared. And you came out of that interview and you told the next person waiting exactly what they'd asked you, how you thought that 
you could have answered better in order to help her. And I found that just so moving because I think it's so easy to get stuck in that competition and that sort of scarcity thinking that, you know, there's only so much to go around and we have to fight each other for it. And I was so moved by that. I've got to be honest with you, I don't know if I'd have done the same. I found it so incredible that you left that room and shared with the next candidate so that she could be better. The thing is, is that throughout my entire life, I've had so many people who have helped me. I give an example in the book of a woman named Femi Oke, who is a Nigerian-British broadcaster. When I was growing up, she was a BBC journalist. And I used to be so you know, moved watching this young Nigerian woman on national television. I really saw it as a celebration of my culture, seeing her in that prominent role. And when I moved to America, I remember turning on the TV one day and seeing her this time on CNN. And so I reached out to her and I just said, listen, you are such an inspiration to me. I was only a journalism student at the time. I was in my very early 20s. And I just said, you're such an inspiration to me. I would love some advice. Kept it very short and sweet. And she replied and gave me her phone number. And I called her and we talked and she gave me lots of great advice about making it in America, making it in the newsroom, et cetera. And several years later, when I eventually scored an interview at CNN, I reached out to her again. This time she'd left CNN and she was working in radio. And again, she sat me down and said, okay, you have an interview at CNN. This is what they're going to ask you. This is who you're going to be meeting with. This is what you say. This is what you don't say. This is how long your interview is going to last with this person. And with this person, it'll only last 15 minutes, but you should talk about X, Y, and Z. Then she invited me to a radio station to practice what a screen test would look like. And so she went out of her way to be generous to me. Again, when I reached out to her, I was a journalism student that did not know her. It was an email from a complete and total stranger. And so when I eventually got the job, I thought about Femi Oke a lot because I thought, gosh, seeing this woman growing up watching her on TV was, yes, a beautiful nod to my heritage, but it actually changed my entire life. It wasn't the fact that, you know, she gave me all this great advice and she explained to me how the interview would go that I thought was the most remarkable thing, although, you know, that was wonderful and very generous. It was the fact that when I wrote her, she actually responded. She actually responded. And I just think that that was, for me, so moving. And again, she's she's Nigerian as well. It goes back to the same kind of spirit of togetherness and the spirit of us, you know, all sort of being in it together. And I will be honest, I reached out to many, many CNN anchors at the time. I sort of tried to figure out what the formula was for the email address for somebody who worked at CNN and reached out to lots and lots of people. And Femi was the only one that wrote me back. Not only did she write me back, she gave me her phone number. And you think about how busy we all are in our daily lives, you know, we get caught up in, okay, gotta make the kids breakfast, gotta take the kids to school, gotta work hard in our jobs, either happily or unhappily. And we come home, fall asleep and do it all again. And it's very easy to receive an email like that from a random total stranger and ignore it. It's very easy. That's what literally every other person that I reached out to did. And, you know, I don't blame them for that. I'm again a total stranger. But the fact that Femi Oke went above and beyond was such an example to me. 
And I've had so many examples in my life of that community spirit that, of course, I learn from that and I pay it forward. And that's what happened when um, I saw that other young girl at CNN applying for the same job that I was going for. It's incredible, isn't it? I read the other day that every act of kindness that we do to another like that actually goes on to impact another 11 people because there is this sort of, Gosh. you know, she was kind to you, therefore you're kind to someone else. And I bet that, you know, that woman that experienced your kindness sat outside the interview room would have in some way passed it forward. It's incredible to think about the upward spiral that can come from those sorts of small but incredibly powerful acts. So when you think about and you reflect on, you know, being a mother now yourself to two boys, isn't it? Yeah, two boys. You know, you think about your mother and everything that she went through. You know, what are some of the things that you think had the greatest impact on you? We talked about many, but are there any others that really had an impact on you that you want to underscore? One of the other things that she really valued was encouraging me to spend time with people from all walks of life. I also talk about that in the book as well. So I went to various types of schools. I went to a private school. I went to a state school. I went to boarding school. I went to school in Nigeria. And I have shared classrooms with black people, white people, rich people, poor people. I mean, I spent time with people from all walks of life. And I love that about my childhood because it's this idea that I could go into a room now and even if I look and sound different from everyone, there's a sense of comfort because that is how I grew up. And that is a value that she really shared with me. It came from a difficult time in her childhood because when she first moved to England, she really didn't fit in. And she had a hard time sort of adjusting, especially coming from Africa, especially in the 1970s. But because of that, she wanted to make sure that we had it differently. And there were ups and downs with that, as I talk about in the book. It's not always easy to be different. But I think that having that sense of relatability with people from all walks of life, from completely different backgrounds, feeling, feeling comfortable with people who are the total opposite of yourself, I think, you know, has carried with me, especially in my current profession. When you're a CNN journalist, you get thrown into all sorts of circumstances with all different types of people. And to be able to connect with those people in profound ways. I mean, obviously I studied languages as well. And I think that my eagerness to study languages came from that, came from wanting to be able to relate to different types of people. And so I think that combined with learning really how to use my time in the wisest way possible, those two things have really had a deep impact on me. It is such an incredible, incredible story. I really would encourage everyone to go and check out the book. And I always ask the same question at the end of every interview, which is, if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Oh, without a doubt, the gift of time. <laughs> because <laughs> as a mother, you never, ever have enough. And now that I'm a mother, not just of one, but of two kids, I know that all too well. So without a doubt, the gift of time for every mother out there. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to connect. My gosh, thank you. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.